Um, for the sermon today, we're going to be going over uh, more hermeneutical tools to add to our toolbox in our In the Beginning series. And the two new tools, I don't know if they're new, but the two tools we're going to be focusing on today, the first is biblical themes in the scriptures, and the second is I don't have a better name for it other than theography. So nobody sue me. It's kind of a new word, but it's not a new word. It's really dumb, but it's just the word I have. Is that fair? Okay. Uh, It's basically the significance of named places in the Bible. When you come across, you know, you're reading the Bible and you read all these names, they're there for a reason. We're going to talk about what that reason is today. Uh, And for the text, uh, Corrine, if you would come up, Um, I'm going to have Corrine read the text. We're going to be reading from Genesis 2, verse 4, all the way um, through 14. So, Corrine, thank you, and take it away. All right. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and heavens. Now no shrub of the field had yet grown on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Springs would well up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from soil of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted an orchard in the east in Eden. There he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow from the soil, every tree that was pleasing to look at and good for food. Now the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were in the middle of the orchard. Now a river flows from Eden to water the orchard, and from there it divides into four head streams. The name of the first is Pishon. It runs to the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is pure. Pearls and lapis lazuli are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It runs through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It runs through the east side of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Thanks. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together as brothers and sisters and just see what you have for us. We are so grateful um, that you care so deeply about us to send your son to die to give us your, your scriptures to live by. We're just blown away by your generosity this morning. Thank you, Lord. Amen. So the purpose of biblical themes is that we're meant to pick up on these themes as we read and reread and reread the scriptures. We're meant to pick up on these kind of continuing threads that go through the whole Bible. And as we pick up on them, what we're meant to do as we kind of identify them at first and we read them, say, in Genesis, where we are now, when we read them again in Joshua or when we read them again in Mark, we're meant to pick up that same thread and return back to the original text and see kind of the flow of the thread. And as the thread goes along, it picks up more threads wrapped around it, and we learn more and more and kind of are are joined in with what the author is meaning as he's writing the text. So there's dozens of themes in, uh, Edenic themes in Genesis 2, like seriously dozens. And we don't have four hours. I would love to be here for four hours, but my wife would not. So um, (laughs) we're going to be here for just half an hour, uh, and we're going to look at Uh, three themes today. We're going to look at mountain, seas, and rivers or springs kind of of together. So let's go ahead and look at the theme of mountains in the text. Did you guys know that Eden is on a mountain? Did you guys pick that up in the text we just read? No. Here's the thing. It doesn't say it explicitly here in this text, but it does say that out of the land of Eden flows a river and in Eden, it flows, it turns into four head rivers. 
than the flow all over the place. Do you have to be pretty high up elevation-wise for that to be a reality? Yeah. So we're introduced to this theme of Eden already last week. Remember, we talked about Eden being a temple, right? And we're priests in the Edenic temple. We have this picture of Eden being a temple, and now we have a picture of Eden being on this high ground. And then we start reading, and you don't have to go very far in the scriptures to see the significance of people on mountains, right? So let's look at this list. So you've got Adam and Eve and Eden. Then you have Noah and his family on Mount Ararat. It's where the ark rests, and Noah makes an altar to the Lord. And God makes a promise to his people. There's, there's significant interaction between humanity and Yahweh on the mountain. We see the same thing with Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah. Now, here, I'm going to read this text. This is from Genesis 2, or sorry, this is Genesis, well, my notes say 2.22, but that is incorrect. Um, it's somewhere else in Genesis. Here's the verse. It says, God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him up there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will indicate to you. So Abraham takes his son Isaac to the land of Moriah. God points out a mountain. Now, we're, this is kind of jumping into our next theme of names in the Bible, but I want to do a quick name search. You guys know there's this name Moriah is only used one other time in the Bible. And it's in 2 Chronicles. It says this. This is 2 Chronicles 3.1. Solomon began building the Lord's temple in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Ooh, that's kind of cool. The place that Isaac was going to be sacrificed becomes the place where they end up building the temple. Hmm, that's pretty neat. Okay, what about Moses? He goes to Horeb or Sinai twice. Uh, Did you know that's where he goes and he sees the burning bush? That's the mountain. He goes up, has a significant interaction with Yahweh. And then years later, he goes back, and that's where he receives the Ten Commandments. Another significant interaction with Yahweh. Humanity on a mountain. Elijah, he goes to Horeb and Sinai. Solomon, he builds the temple on Moriah. And then Jesus was crucified at Golgotha, right next to Mount Moriah. Interesting. So we have this theme of mountains. And so now what we're supposed to do is when we see a mountain in the Bible, what we're meant to do is we're meant to expect some sort of interaction from Yahweh with people on a mountain. It's a biblical theme of mountains. Everyone with me? Okay, let's look at the second theme, the seas. So the seas are interesting because in the Hebrew scriptures, the way that they're used often is to represent chaos or even evil. They're made to represent the unknown. We see Yahweh hovering over the chaos waters in Genesis 1. We see him, his spirit hovering over the waters. And of course, out of the chaos, bringing order and goodness. And then in Genesis 1, 6 through 8, I'm going to read this. Uh, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. It was so. God called the expanse sky. There was evening and there was morning, second day. We see Yahweh being the shaper of waters, continuing to be the shaper of chaos, moving and controlling chaos to create space for humanity to learn and love and thrive. And then Moses in the Red Sea. Moses passes through the waters. God provides a pathway through the midst of destruction, 
There was destruction coming from behind, and they were faced with chaos and destruction in front. And God provided a path in Exodus 14. And then Isaiah 43, 2 picks up on this same imagery when it says this. This is Isaiah 43, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I am with you. When you pass through the streams, they will not overwhelm you. When you pass through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not harm you. We see the seas being likened to chaos, to fire, to destruction. And we're meant to pick up on this theme. When we see the seas, when we see the ocean, we go, oh yeah, there's a biblical theme of chaos and evil and destruction kind of going along with the ocean. That's interesting. And so suddenly, Revelation 21.1 makes a ton of sense. Because it says, Then I saw a new heaven and the new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had ceased to exist, and the sea existed no more. You get to that verse at the end of the Bible, and you go, oh, the sea existed no more. Does that mean there's no more oceans? Turtles, you're like, out of luck. Sorry, guys. Or does that mean evil is taken care of? Because we have this biblical theme that we pick up and carry with us throughout the text. So that's, that's an image that's good to keep in our minds. Okay, let's go to the third one. This is rivers and springs. Now, I want to actually look at the passage before we get to the slide. So look down at Genesis 2, verse 5. Now, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the earth. No plant of the field had yet sprouted. We're meant to imagine a barren desert. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Then look what happens in this barren desert. Springs would well up from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Springs well up from the earth. Now, what's interesting about springs welling up from the earth is that we see Yahweh, remember, in the seas being the controller of chaos and keeping the waters at bay and using the land to say to the proud waves, you shall not pass further than here. We have this picture in our minds of Yahweh. And then we see Yahweh allowing springs of water to rise up and water the dry ground. This is a different kind of water. This is, this is water that Yahweh is not keeping back at bay. This is water that Yahweh is providing from the deep for life, for people, for humanity, as a gift. We're meant, we're meant to start looking at these springs as like life water. Life water. And we see this image of springs being symbolic of God's provision and blessing throughout the Bible. We can go ahead and throw up the spring slide now. We see uh, Rebecca at the spring. Right? We see God's provision of a wife for Isaac at the spring. He shows up at the spring. Oh, and here is God's provision and life and future for Abraham's family right here at the spring. Or you go to uh, Exodus 15, 23. Uh, this is waters, uh, Moses at the waters of Mara, which Mara means bitter in Hebrew. And this is the story. They came to Mara where they were not able to drink the waters of Mara because they were bitter. That is why its name was Mara. So the people murmured against Moses saying, what can we drink? And he cried out to Yahweh and Yahweh showed him a tree. When Moses threw it in the water, the water became safe to drink. In the midst of wilderness, Yahweh provides life water again. Interesting. Or we see Jesus at the well. What does he say to the Samaritan woman? 
Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. But the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. Oh, there's more life water. It's interesting. It's interesting. So those are our three themes for this morning. Mountain, seas, and rivers slash springs. Chaos water versus life water. So after the creation narrative that we see here in Genesis 1 and 2, springs and wells now represent the blessing of Eden throughout the Hebrew Bible. So as you're reading and you come across a well or you come across a spring, you're meant to be attaching this to life water in Genesis. Okay, this is the blessing of Yahweh as we're going along. Okay, so now that we have those three themes in our brains, let's turn to our second hermeneutical tool, theography, which again, awful name. Uh, the idea behind it is when something is named in scripture, it's so easy to just go online and search that name and verses, type the thing and verses, and see where else it pops up. And go, hey, oh, that's interesting. What does that mean? What does that mean? So I want to look at Genesis 10 through 14 and look at the names that are mentioned. Because it's rivers, it's lands, it's really interesting. Let's go. Now a river flows from Eden to water the orchard, and from there it divides into four head streams. The first is the Pishon. It runs through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is pure. Pearls and lapis lazuli are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It runs through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs uh, along the east side of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, if you're anything like me, it's 7.30 in the morning and you've got to go to work soon and you're trying to cram in your Bible reading for the day. No one's like me, it's just me. That's fine, I'll be up here solo. You read these names and then or I do, skip over them, pass them by. Say, that sounds difficult. I don't know how to pronounce that one. <laughs> I'm not gonna do that right now. I'm gonna keep reading. And I mean, fair game, I do the same thing. There is so much treasure and beauty when we pause and we look at these names and we see what they mean. So I wanna do that this morning with this text is look at these names. So the first is the Pishon. Now this is not on a map, you find this in verse 11. It, Pishon means gusher. It's a great name for a river, the gusher. I think that's fantastic. And Havilah, if you look, is on the way to Egypt. We see this represented in Genesis 25, 17. Ishmael lived a total of 137 years. He breathed his last and died, then he joined his ancestors. His descendants settled from Havilah to Shur, which runs next to Egypt all the way to Ashur. They settled away from their relatives. Havilah, do you guys hear it? Havilah, on the way to Egypt. And then actually, Ishmael's mom, this is in Genesis 16, 7, she runs away, she's pregnant with Ishmael, and Sarah is treating her so poorly that she runs away. The Hebrew word is afflicting her. Beating her slave, maybe, we don't know. Awful situation. She's pregnant, and her mistress is doing awful, terrible things to her, and so she runs away. And she's an Egyptian slave. And this is where we pick up the story, Genesis 16, 7. The Lord's angel found Hagar near a spring of water in the desert. Oh, you guys hear that? That's a biblical theme. Does no one else think that's super cool? Oh my goodness, you guys. The spring that is along the road to shore. She's running back to Egypt. 
She's on her way back to Egypt. Interesting. Okay, what about Gihon? This one's also not on a map. Um, this, we find this in verse 13. Guess what Gihon means? Also Gusher. How cool is that? You got two rivers named Gusher with different names. I think that's fantastic. Now Gihon um, is only mentioned once in the Bible and we're here at it, um, uh, or one other time in the Bible, and that's actually uh, the name of the spring in Jerusalem, the Gihon. But it also says that it runs all the way to Cush, which is south of Egypt. It's Ethiopia. So does it mean Jerusalem? Does it mean Ethiopia? Not exactly sure. But it, has, it mentions both, which is interesting. And then we have the Tigris in 14. And it even mentions, this goes to Assyria, goes to the land of Assyria. And this is on the map. You can look up the Tigris today. Uh, it's Mesopotamia. And then the Euphrates is mentioned next. And the Euphrates, we don't have to do all the work, but it's, it's very clear it means Babylon. Babylon. So let's go ahead and throw up uh, the next, oh, two slides from now. Oh, I, oh, that's a great quote. I forgot this quote. Let's read this together. Places in the Bible aren't just listed to make an archive. They catalog meaning. They catalog meaning. Beautiful. Okay. Um, next one. So one more. So if we look at these texts and we look at these names, we see the Pishon goes to Egypt. The Gihon goes to Ethiopia-ish, or Israel. The Tigris goes to Assyria, and the Euphrates goes to Babylon. Interesting. Interesting. So if these rivers are representative of nations, and the rivers themselves are, 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 are images of God's blessing and presence, what do we suddenly see here in Genesis 2 with all these hermeneutical tools brought together? We see the theme of Eden's blessing traveling through the rivers to the nations. We see God's heart for the nations in the Bible as early as Genesis 2. We see the life water of Eden flowing out. You see, the theme of Eden, it, it doesn't stay just here either. It progresses through the entire biblical narrative. Waters flow out of Eden to go bless the earth. Similarly, God sends Israel to the promised land, which is described in a lot of ways as a new Eden. And they're meant to be a blessing to all nations. Interesting. And it's really easy to see God's heart for the nations. Let's go to the next slide. Genesis 2, rivers of Eden. Uh, Genesis 12, blessing of Abraham. I'm going to read this really quickly. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We see Abraham blessed in order to be a blessing. God is taking this blessing, centering it in a person, and then sending it out from there, just like in the garden, centering it and sending it out. And we see this heart even uh, re uh, reflected in 1 Kings. This is at the dedication of the temple. This is after decades of desire to build a temple for Yahweh. David said to the Lord, I, I live in a palace and your, your home is in a tent right now. I want to make you a temple 
That's where this desire begins. And so they build the temple. And it's this huge, momentous occasion for the nation of Israel. And this is the passage that happens at the dedication of the temple by King Solomon. He says this in his prayer to the Lord. Foreigners who do not belong to your people, Israel, will come from a distant land because of your reputation. When they hear about your great reputation and your ability to accomplish mighty deeds, they will come and direct their prayers towards this temple. Then listen from your heavenly dwelling place and answer the prayers of the foreigners. Then all the nations of the earth will acknowledge your reputation, obey you like your people Israel do, and recognize that this temple I built to you. At the high point Solomon's reign of Israel's history, the wealthiest, the most dominant they had ever been, at the pinnacle of their cultural achievement, Yahweh's heart again is for the nations. And the New Church is, or the New Testament church is no different from this. This is this is the Great Commission. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Interesting. What about Acts 13? They're sending out two people, Saul and Barnabas, or Paul and Barnabas later, to go to the nations. They gathered together. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Yahweh called them to go to the nations. They're at this mega church in Antioch. Things are going great. Business is booming, so to speak. And Yahweh says, I have something more for you. I have something more. And he sends them to the nations. You know, uh, David and Sherry just came back from uh, a two-week trip in Albania. And while they were there, they uh, talked with, did you guys talk with the pastor of the uh, Kisha Biblica Dorset? Okay. They talked to the pastor at the Doris Bible Church. Um, And it's this really cool church. Actually, could you show the first picture up on the screen? Tiny church, tiny church in, in Albania, in a coastal town. This church supports five missionaries. By the way, th- this is a church in the poorest nation of Europe. Okay? They support missionaries in four countries of the world, five missionaries in four countries Mexico, Zambia, Turkey, and Albania. That's crazy. That's crazy. That's awesome. Do you know what happened? They were, where were they preaching through, like, Luke or Acts or something like that? And the people were like, well, are we going to send anyone to go? And he's like, yeah, we should see. And then two families were like, yeah, I'll go. I'll go. And they're gone. That's amazing. It's amazing. In Acts, we see... You, you can take that slide down, I think so. In Acts, we see churches caring for their local context deeply and caring about other churches around the world. We see, we see churches in Acts caring deeply for orphans and widows in their own community and hearing about needs in other places and sending money, sending help, going, traveling, visiting themselves, doing all these things, echoing Yahweh's heart for the nations that we see beginning in Genesis 2 all the way through the entire Bible. That's really cool. So the question that kind of bubbled up in my heart as I was thinking about this is, what's our heart for the nations look like? 
What does it look like to have a heart for the nations? Not because it's like a cool thing to do, but it's because we're trying to be more like Jesus. And Jesus cares deeply about the nations. And by the way, we're the nations too. We're not Israel. We've been grafted in. We're here. We're doing it. We're doing the thing because of traveling missionaries, because of people preaching. We're doing it right now today, this morning, as a fruit and byproduct of all that work. And so now we ask the question, how do we care for the people in our community really well? And I think we're doing a good job of that. Obviously not perfect. But then what does it mean to also care for the nations beyond that? So if you're new, you may not know, I grew up as a missionary kid in Albania. So I lived there until I was 18. And uh, which has meant in the last, I moved here in 2008. So I've been here for whatever years that is, 13 years or something. Whenever I'm around in churches in Portland, whenever anyone has a connection to Albania, they always go, oh, you said you're from Albania? Well, I know so-and-so. Or I sat down for my very first class at seminary um, four or five years ago, and I was like, oh, yeah, Albania. And the guy across from me, who I'd never met before, we were just going around the table introducing ourselves, goes, I've been to Albania. I'm like, no, you haven't. <laughs> Don't lie to me. He's like, no, I have. And he, he's a pastor at a church up in Everett, Washington, and they've been sending a youth group to Albania every year for 10 years. That's cool. So I keep having these interactions and conversations about six months ago, I was at a pastor's prayer thing and I met a new guy. He's a pastor of a church on the east side called Mosaic. And I mentioned Albania. He goes, oh, we support missionaries in Kosovo. Oh, that's really cool. That's awesome. And that just got my gears turning. I was like, there are a lot of people in this area that have connections to Albania. Like that's very strange. Why are there so many connections to this tiny Eastern European country in this small small part of America. And I started counting. There are seven nonprofits and five churches in this area that are all connected to Albania already. That's cool. That's, that's amazing. And so I started calling everybody. I was like, <laughs> I'm really awkward. I'm like, do you want to be friends? I don't know. Like, can we talk? And so eventually what happened was I called uh, the guy who's uh, the head of the Loose Palau organization, and they do a lot of like inner city stuff, um, or intra-city stuff is what I'm trying to express. And uh, they said, yeah, we'd love to get everyone together and host a lunch and talk and pray and just see what God's going to do. So this Thursday, all these people are getting together. And we're going to dream and we're going to talk about what does it look like to love this country from afar together. And it's really, it's really simple stuff. Like, uh, I, I mentioned this idea to a friend of mine who works for Young Life. He goes, oh, by the way, I just got put on the Young Life Europe team. I'm like, that's nuts. He goes, yeah, and I'm headed to Albania in two weeks. I was like, well, that's really cool. Who's, like, your people on the ground? And he goes, oh, there's a pastor at a church there. Um, his name's Landi. Do you know Landi? So Landi's David Sand is, like, best friend in the world. Landi pastors the church that my dad planted there in 91. Oh, that's cool. Who's like your, do you have any staffers? Oh, yeah, yeah, there's this guy called, um, let's see, his dad used to be in the secret police. I go, is it Bledi? He goes, it's Bledi. Bledi is like my closest friend from growing up. Our houses were two doors down from each other. We would, we would go over to each other's houses for sleepovers. His dad was one of the first elders of the church. I'm like, that's nuts. 
So I messaged Blady. I'm like, Blady, is there anything like I can send with this guy for you? He goes, well, uh, man, an iPad would be great. I'm like, sold. You get an iPad for Young Life. That's great. Let's do it. And then the Young Life conference gets moved from Albania to Prague. And I go, and now he's not going to get there anymore. I go, well, I don't know. Oh, David and Sherry are going. David and Sherry, can you take an iPad <laughs> to a Young Life worker in Albania while you're leading worship for another conference? And they said, yes. I got a text from Bledi with him holding the iPad up. And it's just, that's just such a small instance of three different organizations working together to get a Young Life guy in Toronto, Albania, an iPad. Who knows what's going to happen when we have everybody in the room together dreaming and praying about Albania together. So I get to do that on Thursday for lunch. It's going to be amazing. But that's my answer to this question. What's your answer to this question about God's heart for the nations? Well, what's God stirring in your heart? And by the way, part of the reason we're getting together, my dad has this great saying where he says, relationship is the currency of the kingdom. Relationship is what God uses to make kingdom things happen in the world over and over and over again. So the question is, what relationships do you already have? If you, if you feel like you've got none, you're surrounded by people that have tons. I grew up in Albania. There's a family in the church here who was like, hey, we want to start giving to something in Albania. Keep your ear to the ground. I said, I will. And then uh, I kept my ear to the ground, and this family came up. Would you throw up the next slide, the one with David and Sherry on it? And David and Sherry hung out with them. This is Gani and Sony Begu. I love these guys. He's, I don't think he changed my diapers. I hope not. I don't know if he'd be good at it. Uh, but they've known me since I was that little. And they're Albanian church leaders. He just graduated from top, top of his class from, oh, Gordon Conwell in seminary. Top of his class. Doing it entirely digitally, by the way. Getting up for class at three in the morning. He, this is the guy, whenever there's a church pastor vacancy in Albania, people are like, would you come do it, please? And he's like, I don't think that's what God's calling me to do. <laughs> And he'll go and do something else, like start a church or do, I mean, just all kinds of stuff. He's amazing. And so now there's a family in our church that's giving to them every month. It's amazing. And that's just one connection through me to Albania, right? There's dozens of connections in this room, dozens. You know, Rick and Sherry both work for a short-term admissions organization called Forward Edge. They do. Do you want to go on a short-term missions trip? Talk to these guys. Great, Kevin's going. He just signed up. We all heard it. Thank you, Kevin. We, we can take that down now. So the question is, what is our heart as a church? If we see God's heart for the nation so clearly laid out in the entirety of scriptures, beginning with rivers of all things in Genesis 2, what does it look like for you and I to be conduits of the blessing of Eden in the world both around us and far away? What does that look like? How do we, how do we look at that aspect of God's heart and say, I want to mirror that part of your heart right now? I want to, I want to become more like you in that aspect in that way. What do we do? There's this incredible passage in Isaiah chapter 2, and we'll close with this passage. You can throw up the final slide, Kevin. I'm going to read it. In the future, the mountain of the Lord's temple will endure as the most important of mountains. 
It will be the most prominent of hills. All the nations will stream to it. Many people will come up and say, come, let us go up to the Lord's mountain, to the temple of the God of Jacob. So he can teach us his requirements and we can follow his standards. For Zion will be the center for moral instruction. The Lord will issue edicts from Jerusalem. Now, I've color-coded it to help us with themes. Red, mountains, the mountain of the Lord, Eden, Horeb, Sinai, Ararat, the mountain of the Lord. Cool. The Lord's temple, Eden, remember? We're priests in his temple. To the temple of the God of Jacob, the Lord's temple will endure. And the nations will stream up to it. Now, this is crazy. This is at the end of days. The blessing of Eden is reversed. And the nations flow upriver to the mountain of God and meet God there. And the blessing and nourishment of Eden has reached its goal. And the nations stream towards Yahweh, the water flowing uphill. So cool. So cool. And I, I pray and hope that your imagination, your heart is sparking right now with desire to jump in and be a part of the blessing of Eden to the nations. Locally, globally, all of, all of the above.